G'day. Welcome to God's Word Today's World, applying scripture to modern life. My name is Dan Van Werkhoven. I'm an Aussie writer and pastor living with my wife on a tiny island called Saipan. Join me today as I dig into scripture and explore how God's Word can still be applied to our lives thousands of years later. Hey, you're listening to episode 20 of the God's Word Today's World podcast. In today's episode, we're looking at how our culture impacts the gospel, and often in not a good way. We'll look at how important it is to make our standard of living the Bible, not what those around us expect of us. If you want access to the show notes and the full transcript, you can find those over at www.godswordtodaysworld.com forward slash listen and look for episode 20 on the list. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. But without further ado, let's dig in. Last week in episode 19 of the God's Word Today's World podcast, we spent time in Acts looking at the faith of a Roman centurion, Cornelius. What was so incredible about his faith was just how straightforward he was with it. He didn't try to argue his way out of things. He took God at his word and immediately did what God commanded of him. And I challenge us to do the same when we sit down to read God's word. I challenge us to read it with humility and a willingness to learn with a desire to change our lives to suit God's word, instead of trying to change God's word to suit our lives. This week we're continuing the idea of not changing God's word by looking at an event where some of the early believers let their culture change the gospel. They tried to add to salvation something that Jesus never taught. Our passage today is Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through to 18, and this is the World English Bible. Now the apostles and the brothers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter had come up to Jerusalem, those who were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain container descending, like it was a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. It came as far as me. When I had looked intently at it, I considered and saw the four-footed animals of the earth, wild animals, creeping things, and birds of the sky. I also heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord. For nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But a voice answered me the second time out of heaven, What God has cleansed, don't you call unclean. This was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. Behold, immediately three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent from Caesarea to me. The Spirit told me to go with them without discriminating. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying to him, Send to Joppa and get Simon, who is called Peter, who will speak to you words by which you will be saved, you and all your house. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. 
I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized in water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. If then God gave to them the same gift as us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So in chapter 10, we have the amazing event of God telling Peter that no one is unclean whom he has made clean, and he has declared the Gentiles clean. Not only can Jews be saved, but also Gentiles. Now Peter returns to Jerusalem. He's barely set foot in the city when a group of Christians found him and began to criticize him for spending time in the house of uncircumcised men and eating with them. See, this group, while Christians, were trying to add to the gospel. They were bringing up an aspect of Judaism, circumcision of males, and saying that to be a Christian, you not only had to accept Jesus Christ as Lord, you also had to be circumcised if you were male. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever say that circumcision is a requirement for salvation. And this is why we do need to carefully view the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. This is why we need to check it against what Jesus did and said. Because in the Old, Circ- in the Old Testament, male circumcision was a requirement God gave to the people of Israel. It was a symbol that they were a set-apart people. But Jesus removed the need for that when he came and died on the cross. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1-6, through six, again the World English Bible, Stand firm, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, tell you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. Yes, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You are alienated from Christ, you who desire to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For we through the Spirit, by faith, wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision amounts to anything, but faith working through love. And he continues in verses 13 to 15. For you, brothers, were called for freedom. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants to one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, be careful that you don't consume one another. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus came, he redefined what following God looked like. Instead of being a long list of laws for purity and how to conduct ourselves, he instead responded with this when asked by the Pharisees which law was most important. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. A second likewise is this, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. When we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbors as ourselves, we fulfill the law. And believe me, it's more than hard enough to follow just those two commands. I talked about this topic a bit last week, but the reason I came back to it was to demonstrate again how Jesus redefined things when he came. In Matthew 5-7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by saying that not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says that those who don't follow what he's about to say, which is redefining how to follow the law given to Moses, will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And this is important. Jesus does not say that if you don't follow the law, you can't have salvation. Following the law doesn't grant salvation. It can't. It never could. And that's what the Pharisees and the Jews missed. They believe following the law earned them salvation. The reason this is important in today's passage is because this should have been something clear to anyone who gave their life to Christ in the early church. These circumcised believers who came and criticized Peter should already have known what Jesus taught about the law, that Jesus taught that it wasn't the law that gave salvation, but rather the only way to the Father was through the Son, Jesus. And yet these Jewish Christians carried something from their culture and tried to add it to the gospel of salvation. They were doing exactly what the Pharisees for so long had done. The Pharisees took God's original law, given through Moses, and added all their own rules to it. Now these Christians who had come from Judaism were taking God's free gift of salvation and adding a cost to it. If you were a dude, you had to be circumcised to be saved. They took the gospel of salvation given by Jesus and added to it. They changed it. Paul in Galatians 1 verses 6 to 9 has this to say about changing the gospel of salvation. I marvel that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different good news. But there isn't another good news. Only there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the good news of Christ. But even though we, or an angel in heaven, should preach to you any good news other than that which we preach to you, let him be cursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if any man preaches to you any good news other than that which you received, let him be cursed. What really struck me with Acts 11 was just how easy it is to take our culture and try to make the gospel fit it, make our understanding of the Bible suit how our culture teaches us to live. These circumcised believers took something they grew up with, circumcision, and they tried to fit it into the gospel to make it a part of salvation. Anyone who wasn't circumcised was unclean and unfit to be a part of the kingdom of heaven in their mind. And my question is this, how often have we taken aspects of our culture, even our church culture, and judged others unworthy because they didn't fit? I've witnessed so many situations of a tattooed person being judged unworthy of God's kingdom. 
of someone wearing shorts and flip-flops to church being deemed unworthy, of someone drinking being unworthy, of taking drugs being unworthy, of swearing. The list goes on. And I'm not saying that everything on that list is good, but that's my point. My point is that salvation doesn't hinge on whether or not we look a certain way, act a certain way, or even if we sin. Salvation hinges on putting our faith in God's Son, Jesus. Yes, repentance is a part of that, but it's repenting of our previous refusal to accept Jesus, our outlook on sin. When we repent and turn to Jesus, we're saying, I didn't think I needed salvation previously, but now I turn from them and I recognize I am a sinner and I need God's forgiveness. I need to follow Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit work in me to change my life. We don't have to wait until we've repented of every single sin we've ever committed before we can have salvation. Because if that were so, we'd never achieve salvation. Because many of us have doubtless committed sins we don't even realize yet are sins. Many of us will probably die with unrepented sin in our lives. But what is important is that we recognize that we are horrible, terrible people by God's perfect standard. Even if we never hurt a fly, we're failures next to God's standard. Even if we spend every day of our life giving to charity, feeding the poor, opening the door for others, saying please and thank you, giving up our spot in the queue to the person with only a few items, not honking at people who cut us off, not even slowing down to a crawl when we're being tailgated by someone. Even if we do all that, we are still dirty, rotten, pathetic, miserable sinners who deserve to be separated from God forever in the fires of hell. Putting our faith in Jesus is saying, yeah, we recognize that's who we are, and that we will always fall short of God's standard, unless our sins are washed away by the blood Jesus spilled on the cross when he died as the perfect and blameless sacrifice for sin. And we can have salvation and eternal life because God rose him up three days later, defeating death. So we need to be careful that we don't add to that gospel of salvation. We need to be careful not to let our culture influence our faith, but rather let our faith influence our culture and how we see culture. It can be all too easy to say, Yes, you can be saved, but if you don't dress nicely on Sunday, maybe cover up your tattoos and stop swearing instantly, well, I'll be concerned for your soul. I'm not sure you're exactly saved if you still swear. That might sound a bit silly to some, but the point is this. As we've grown up, especially those of us who have been Christians a long time, we tend to develop our idea of what a Christian looks like, how a Christian should act. And unfortunately, what that looks like isn't always how the Bible teaches us Christians should look. For example, if you were to never have stepped foot in a church in your life, and you were to read Acts, the impression of the church you'd get would look nothing like the average Western church, not even remotely close. We've seen this year as we've gone through this series in Acts, 
how the early church was a church that met constantly, not just on Sunday. They actually did life together. Many in the church were selling possessions so the church could give to the poor. How many churches in the West have you seen where the rich members are selling houses and downsizing so the church can support the widows, the orphans, the disabled, those in need who meet with them? What we have in the West is a 90-minute meeting once a week where we say hi to a few people, sing a few songs, listen to a preferably short sermon, maybe tithe, say goodbye to a few friends, and go home. We've become so picky about church that we even get bothered if the preaching style isn't exactly what we want, if the lighting in the church isn't quite nice enough, if the coffee isn't brewed on time or if it's not brand name, if the, if the music is the wrong style, if the people aren't dressed the right way. Not one single one of those things is mentioned even once in Acts. And yet many of those things have become how we decide which church is worth investing our time in. And the worst part is, when we do pick a church and get settled and comfortable with how things function, if someone comes in who doesn't fit the mold, so often the church, whether intentionally or not, alienates that person and leaves them feeling like they're not welcome to be a part of the body of Christ. Perhaps we should be looking for the people who seem out of place and making a special effort to make them feel welcome. Because God, when God adopted us as his children, you can bet that we look really out of place against his perfection. And yet, every sinner who gives their life to Christ, the awe-inspiring angels in God's presence rejoice for that one person. Luke fifteen ten. My point is this. Do we require other believers to live, act, and present themselves a certain way before we accept them? Do we follow in the footsteps of the circumcised believers who were upset with Peter because of who he spent time with, who didn't think Cornelius and his family and friends were fit for the kingdom of heaven because they didn't tickle their boxes? I found it all too easy to be like a Pharisee when you grow up in the, old, in the Western church. I certainly judged many a person in my life by standards I got from church culture, not from the Bible. But these circumcised believers, they weren't all bad. Yes, they did try to exclude from God's family people whom God had accepted. However, there is a lesson these circumcised believers can teach us. They began this passage by trying to influence the gospel with their culture but they ended it by accepting what God had done and praising him. After Peter told the story, clearly demonstrating God's power and having witnesses to back up the story, in verse 18, the circumcised believers had no further objections and praised God. We should strive to have that level of humility, of being open to God's work and how he's guiding things. When we see something different in how others worship, in how other believers do life, in the decisions they make, 
instead of first assuming that because it's not how we do things, it's just wrong, we should go to the Bible and see if things match up. What we may discover is we're not matching up with the Bible because we're judging by mere appearances. John 7 verse 24 for reference. It's all too easy to criticize how others live and completely disregard that God created all of us different and our faith has many ways of being expressed. We need to remember that what church looks like in the West is by and large nothing like what the early church looked like. And that doesn't make it all wrong or bad or mean no good is happening or that God isn't using it. But it does perhaps mean that we have a lot of room for improvement. So before we judge how others do church or how others live out their faith, let's make sure our faith is lining up with the Bible and that we're not judging based on our culture and tradition, but by the Bible's standard. And make sure we're first striving to fix our own lives before trying to fix others' lives. Be careful not to judge other, be- other believers' actions based on how we were raised, but rather judge actions based on what Jesus teaches. Read Matthew 5-8 to and take a look at how Jesus teaches us to live. That's the standard by which we should live life. And remember, even if another believer fails to live their life according to Jesus' commands, that doesn't automatically rule them out of salvation. It can be easy to take the leap and say, because someone is sinning, they're not saved. But remember this, a sinless life isn't a condition of salvation. And all sin, no matter how big or small we might regard it, is still sin and still puts us short of God's perfect standard. Our little white lie means we're just as guilty and deserving of hell as a murderer's sin. I say that again. Our little white lie, our tiny little sin that hardly matters to us, means that we are just as guilty and deserving of hell as a murderer's sin. We need to get out of the mindset of grading sin and being less worried about our own sin because it's not as bad as their sin. It is bad. All sin is bad. And we should be striving to follow Jesus' commands, especially as laid out in Matthew 5-8. to We should be asking the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and be seeking to remove all sin from our life. Because when we sin, when we intentionally sin, we stop loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And we stop loving others as ourself. Because sin is by its nature selfish. It puts the focus on us, our wants, our desires. It pulls the focus from God, from his desire for us and how we live our life. And it pulls the focus from expressing God's love in how we love others. And so my challenge this week is a twofold challenge. Number one, be careful not to exclude others from the body of Christ because they don't match 
your church's culture. And two, strive to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Strive to love others as yourself. To live Christ-like lives, we need to put the needs of others above our own needs. Jesus in John 13, 34-35 tells the disciples to love one another as he loves them. He died for them. He died for us. That's how high we should rank the needs of others. We should be willing to die for our brothers and sisters in Christ. By that, the entire world will know we are Jesus' disciples. When we have that kind of love for others, it's much easier to avoid making the mistake the circumcised believers made in Acts 11 of judging based on our culture and how we were raised instead of on the gospel as Jesus taught it. Really, when we strive to love others in the same way Jesus loved us, well, a lot of these problems cease to exist because instead of judging differences, we'll be rejoicing at meeting another brother or sister in Christ. And that's exciting. Thank you for joining me today on God's Word Today's World. If you'd like to view the show notes or leave a comment, you can find the complete list of all podcast episodes over at www.godswordtodaysworld.com forward slash listen. Hope to see you next week. Now go apply God's Word to your life.